Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. These events have exposed Western liberal hypocrisy. The West has never found it harder to define itself. How could liberals justify such barefaced apartheid and genocide? I think we would need to cease to be um, Muslims in any really substantial way. Do we have to go? What transformation do we need to go through in order to be tolerated by liberalism and liberal societies? I don't believe that that real Islam can be tolerated by arbitrist liberalism. So where does that leave people like me, Muslims in the West who live here amongst in Western liberal societies. Well, I think we'll go on pretending, won't we? (laughs) The events of the last six weeks have exposed the sheer double standards that apply to the implementation of international law. The so-called liberal international order has been found to be nothing short of hypocritical. Gaza has exposed not only this duplicity, but also the very ideas that undergird such a system. Today we explore these ideas. Many surmise that the West has taken a wrong turn, and if only they return back to their original noble enlightenment values. Yet Gaza unveils a more unsettling truth. The very values of secular liberalism have always remained connected to European chauvinism. Their unbridled support for a settler colonial project and the ease with which they absorb genocide reveals the unsettling nature of liberalism itself. This is the argument of my guest today, Hassan Spiker. Hassan is a philosopher and comparative scholar of Islamic, Greek and modern thought. He studied at the University of Cambridge where he received his MPhil in philosophy and where he's carrying out his doctoral research. He also studied the Islamic sciences. His new book, Hierarchy and Freedom, an examination of some classical metaphysical and post-enlightenment accounts of human autonomy was released this year. Hassan Spiker, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, in a recent piece you penned on Twitter, 
You argued that Gaza is a turning point for the Muslim Ummah. Why do you argue that? Well, I think that there are two senses in which it's a turning point. One is intrinsic because of a confluence of events. Mm. And another actually is up to us. We should and must make it into a turning point. It would be right to do so. But the primary reason in terms of Muslim existence in the West, and that's really primarily what I'm talking about, but it does have implications elsewhere, is that these events have exposed Western liberal hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of the underlying claims of the liberal order. I think more startlingly, startlingly, more unmistakably, more categorically than we've ever seen before, possibly at any other time in history. I think the reason that it's been so transparent, the hypocrisy, such that everyone's seen it, Mm. and it's been exposed relentlessly and mercilessly almost on social media, is because it is contemporaneous with a catastrophic decline, internal decline, in the West in all sorts of different ways, but, I mean, particularly here I'm thinking culturally, Mm. with the culture wars, the West has never found it harder to define itself, to know what it's supposed to be about. And so you you have culture wars. One of the main battlefronts, as you know, is the whole issue of colonialism, the, leg- the legacy of colonialism exposing the crimes and the true pernicious, fundamentally evil nature of the imperial venture being getting to the point where it's become a matter of scholarly fact, essentially. Mm. And then on the other hand, so that's, usually associated with the left. On the right, you ha- on the traditional right, you have a pushback from that as well. You know, we may have got one or two things wrong, but broadly it was still a civilizing mission. Yeah. Um, and that's the side that you're finding the populism, which usually in response to this bogeyman of Islamism and, and, the, and this other of Islam yeah. is trying to find, trying to reclaim this sense of an indigenous Christian culture and we are a christian nation it's a christian country christian values Mm. and short of that most of the time it is short of that british values which have a kind of respect for a christian past but certainly can't subscribe to christianity very often you have the douglas murrays of this world who are i mean in his case he's actually a gay atheist incidentally who is calling for a return to Christian values. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the level, and that in itself is an instance of that kind of hypocrisy, that level of civilizational weakness. At the same time as we've already been subject to 20 years of the export, the export, exportation of freedom and democracy, uh, you know, we're, uh, uh, as a, a type of justification for uh, the huge aggression directed towards the Muslims in the war on terror... But the point is where it's supposed to be the ultimate universal neutral advocate for the human being, for the right to life, for human rights, for freedom. And yet 
we've seen them vacantly ratifying genocide right in front of our eyes, yeah. which for the first time ever has also been live streamed right before our eyes. And it's unmistakable. And even those who used to be on the fence or who even sometimes were themselves uh, enthusiastic Zionists, seeing this, have, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's turned into a real crisis of conscience for them. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the other side, the, the inveterate Zionists have hardened and they've had to start to defend the indefensible. And the reality is when you try to when you start to defend the indefensible, people are not people are not stupid. And that, that's very transparent. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Israelis also in the past weeks have suffered the biggest propaganda defeat that they have ever, ever suffered. Mm -hmm. Because they it's just so transparent that it's transparently indefensible what they're trying to defend. Mm -hmm. So do you think this is a departure from liberalism? Or is it in fact, uh, it's in accordance with some of the values of liberalism. Like, I suppose my question is, how could liberals justify such barefaced apartheid and genocide? Absolutely. Well, thank you. And as you know, it's a very, very widespread, <coughs> excuse me, misconception, um, which is, of course, enthusiastically encouraged by liberalism writ large. Mm that liberalism is fundamentally peaceful yeah. and that its attitude towards freedom is absolute. Free self-determination is absolute. The ability to choose your own fundamental values is absolute. Uh, the, the, your uh, right to pursue and create your own vision of the good, to define your own vision of the good is absolute. It's not. Mm. There is one major exception, which is if you are seen as a counter hegemony, mm. hegemony sorry, yeah. to liberalism itself. And that's the only thing that can't be, that cannot be countenance, it cannot be tolerated. Mm. And this is actually explicitly written into a number of the founding texts of liberalism right. in so many other words. And so you find in John Stuart Mill's Ironically enough, his great work on liberty, which is all about the defense of uh, individualism and individual autonomy and self-determination and the sovereignty of the self and so on, he says, and I quote, despotism is a legitimate form of government when dealing with barbarians. Right. Right. He says despotism is a legitimate form of government in dealing with barbarians. Now, he hasn't been cancelled for these words. Mm. Um, he's a big-time uh, feminist. He wrote on the subjection of women. He's really, he's not one of those old hat figures who we have to kind of um, dust off and, and rehabilitate because he said some dodgy things. He is the liberal thinker par excellence. Yes. Um, but he says these words very explicitly, and it's exactly in the context of him previously saying, introducing his harm principle, right. saying the whole purpose of this treatise is to, to tell you that to argue for the thesis that the only justification, the only reason for which an individual or a collectivity can legitimately interfere in the free self-determination, in, in the liberty of another person, mm. is for the purposes of self-protection, mm. right? 
anything else is an oppressive imposition. And even the person's, for that interference, the person's own good, mm. you know, it's citing that well, it's for his own good, yeah. is no justification because there's no such thing as, as, as an absolute good. But then how can Mill justify colonialism uh, if he has such a strict principle of what the harm should be or what the limits of, of, of harm or the limits of freedom should be? Well, thank you exactly for directing to me towards this incredible contradiction. Yeah. He immediately goes on to say, every individual over their mind and their body is sovereign. Mm. And then he suddenly says, of course, this doesn't apply to children. Right. Or people not in possession of, of a realized rationality. Yeah. Let's say the, uh, or who have a deficient rationality, let's say those who have a, a physical deficiency. In, um, and it doesn't apply to barbaric peoples. Mm. It doesn't apply to peoples who fall short of the required levels of civilization. They require despotism. Now, his goal is representative government. That's the, that's the ultimate goal of his political goal of his liberalist project because he sees this as conducive to a greater individual freedom. Yes. Now, these barbaric civilizations and cultures require a despotic leader. They need to be guided either by an enlightened despot from amongst their own ranks or by a, a, a mentoring nation who will come in and rule them until they reach a stage of maturity where they can themselves become liberal and democratic. And so the right of military intervention uh, is written in there very, very clearly. Right. Um, and it's 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 uh, explicitly stated in Rawls, you know, much later. Uh, this is John Rawls, a 20th century philosopher, Obama's favorite philosopher. Absolutely. So how does John Rawls appreciate or understand this point? Yeah. Well, John Rawls uh, considers the existence of those who oppose the liberal democratic order mm. to be a great danger to the survival of the liberal democratic really? order. Right. Um, now, what he takes is the, as you know, in his in his uh, ethical philosophy, in his political philosophy, um, he starts from what he calls the original position, yes. which is that we're going to pretend we have a veil of ignorance. We're in a big committee. We're we're trying to determine the broadest possible universal rights for the 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 uh, the society that we're subsequently going to govern, yeah. but. We have to do so in order to be fair by existing behind this veil of ignorance. We have to not know. We have to be prevented from knowing anything about the details of the people that we're going to govern. Mm. They are just abstract human beings without any differences between them of, of religion, of race, even of, let's say, level of education um, and all sorts of other different um, uh, determinants. Mm. So um, what we end up bestowing are these extremely universal and, um, well, they're rights that one might consider to be neutered of any 
nuance of any actual awareness of legitimate difference. But um, the, the original position grants, let's say, most fundamentally, the right of individual liberty and self-determination. Mm. So regardless of, let's say, truth claims that might exist, let's say that there are actual communists in this hypothetical society mm. who actually believe that communism is true. Mm. There are actual Muslims in this hypothetical society who actually believe that Islam is objectively true. Mm. All of those objective truth claims are protected in the sense that the individual is allowed to profess them, but he's not allowed to manifest them if that in any way is seen to impair the, the same arbitrary self-determination that any other group might, might want to enjoy themselves. Mm. Only liberalism can host all of these arbitrary truth claims. Of course, what liberalism is actually saying is all of these truth claims are equally false. They're equally absurd. None of them have any real value, mm. except insofar as that they are, that, that they are, for example, identitarian markers. They're a sense. They're a, a means by which an individual comes to to feel a sense of fulfilment and mm. so on. Mm. Uh, in any case, um, the original position, which basically amounts ultimately to granting this hypothetical society the the individual right to arbitrary self-determination um, then uh, becomes applied to a community of nations who are seen as a community and legitimate and worthy of respect and, um, and mutual protection uh, if they adhere to the results of this original position. And if they don't? And if they don't, uh, we, it's our duty and right, our right and duty to impose those human rights that are being violated, um, that protection of individual arbitrary self-determination uh, by force, mm. um, if necessary. Right. Yeah. And this is very, very clearly stated. And of course, what does this include? I mean, this includes, for example, transgender rights. Because this is the sense of arbitrariness. If there's a, a, a nation which is failing to uphold uh, transgender rights, mm -hmm. the right of self-identification and, so, uh, and, and so on, or let's say um, the right to the public display of, of homosexuality, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. um, that is um, considered to be their falling short in human rights. That is itself a sufficient justification for intervention, let alone anything else. So this is interesting because often when we think about colonialism or military interventionism today, we, we, often, uh, uh, we often believe that conservatives mm. uh, it would, you know, with, a, with a small c are the ones who justify these types of exploits. But your mm. argument really is that both conservatives and liberals mm. in many ways find roots in to justify these interventions. Um, it, recently, we've had, I don't know, interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, these interventions happen to come uh, coincide with conservative leaderships in the United States. Mm. Um, how did liberals justify these projects? Well, um, I think it amounts to uh, fundamentally um, 
this this very argument that uh, there has to be a, an exception to um, the tolerance of liberalism, mm. which is its very existence. Um, now, the thing is, if we're going to understand, if we're going to turn, which I think is necessary to an extent, to the philosophical foundations um, of all this, mm. um, we find that liberalism is essentially a dogmatic philosophy, yeah. which is the last thing that it would generally want itself to be thought as, thought of as, but it's a dogmatic ethical philosophy and it is an example of what we call dogmatic arbitrism. Mm. So liberalism is essentially starting from the argument from ignorance. Mm. It's saying we as human beings have very, very limited cognitive capabilities. Our cognitive capabilities don't match on to, don't arise from in any way, mm. the way the world is extramentally beyond the way that we look at it. Um, and let's take, for example, one of the founders of liberalism, John Locke, mm. who was very characteristically, and this is really almost across the board amongst uh, the canonical uh, liberalists, was a staunch empiricist. And the thing about empiricism is that it's a theory of knowledge which claims that our only access to a nature of things, our only access to a way the, the way things really are, our only knowledge, our only access to knowledge of objective reality is the senses. Right. Right. And the senses and let's say a little bit of thinking abstractly about the senses, but always rooted in the senses. So this negates religion or the metaphysical. Exactly. Ah. The the problem with this is it's not so much that it formally negates it. You see, it can say, oh, we're tolerating ah, it, uh -huh. but it is strictly unknowable in itself and so almost a nonsensical proposition. Right. You can believe in that, which has no evidence, but you could also believe in anything else, any yes. other silly nonsense. Yes. Well, now they're below. Yes. So the, the problem with, uh, li uh, not liberalism, but the empiricism that generally underlies it mm. is it a priori, Ironically enough, a priori excludes uh, aesthetic judgments, right, about absolute beauty, mm. metaphysical judgments, right, about, let's say, the na what's the nature of the soul, what's the meaning of life, is there an afterlife, the, the, the existence of God, and so on. And it excludes moral judgments, right. because how are you going to objectively root a moral judgment in the senses? The senses don't reveal any form of moral judgment, right? And so it's, it's what kind of ethics do you derive from that kind of epistemology? Well, it's, the, it's an ethics which argues from radical freedom, the state of radical freedom that we are now in, given that all of those domains that used to be the main concern of mankind, aesthetics, metaphysics, and theology, of course, and ethics are now arbitrary. They're all individual choices. So they come from the mind of human beings and they're derived from experience. But, but then you have liberal thinkers like Immanuel Kant uh, who have devised or has devised a moral philosophy. I mean, so how, how did he come about 
these that's, moral that's ethics. a very good point yeah. and um Immanuel Kant is not a an empiricist as you rightly point out no. although he is a very much an and an empirical leaning philosopher and a great part of his philosophy is to reconcile between rationalism and empiricism right. however and this is something i was going to say i'm very glad that you brought him up kant in this domain is actually one of the good guys uh-huh. because you because you might ask well how is there are some people who would describe themselves as liberals who are absolutely horrified by, by what's going on here yeah. well they could re, they could actually uh, they could actually ascribe themselves theoretically they could say well we're we're in kant's camp because Kant, in his perpetual piece, explicitly says, intervention in foreign states, regardless of their nearness or their proximity or otherwise to these values, these liberal values that we are espousing, hmm. is categorically forbidden right. and can never be justified at any time. Right. So there is a difference of opinion. Um, and in fact, there's an interesting article comparing Kant and Mill in this regard mm. and it's exactly this this distinction between empiricism on the one hand and an ideal theory on the other which is the clincher here it's because Mill is an empiricist that he thinks that he's justified in going down that route mm. and it's because uh, Kant is adhering to principles that he feels that he can't mm. so it's a very very interesting um mm. That's very fascinating. Can I ask you about uh, the West's moral claims to superiority? So um, Westerners often remind the world that their values of democracy, of human rights, of freedom, equality, individualism, these values are actually human values. They're universal values. So in Mm. in a sense, you can find these values in any belief systems. Mm. And so liberalism is, as Fukuyama argues, the final mm. uh, ideology yeah. of man, the final thought process of man. Mm. How would you uh, contend with this type of argument? Well, um, this type of argument, I think, is rooted in a long story of intellectual deterioration Hmm. Uh, in the Western world, right. And the thing is, as you as you know, we both know very well. I mean, the average person in the street, as as um, <laughs> as much as I hate using that expression, <laughs> would probably accept the premise that you just put forward without thinking, right? And they've probably never thought about it critically in their lives. Yeah. And we actually, even as Muslims, probably grow out, grow up, some somewhat to some extent, believing in that uh, that that claim, right? Um, now, uh, the, the reality is there's nothing neutral or universal about that claim in the sense that that's a claim that's somehow natural to human beings prior to ideology, prior to thought, because of what we've just said. Liberalism is actually a dogmatic, arbitrist position. Now, again, arbitrism is the idea that there is no possible knowledge, even in principle, yeah. of, as we said, these non-sensible properties, these non-sensible claims, aesthetics, metaphysics, theology, uh, and ethics. Um, and because there's no... Now, that's a dogmatic position, because we are asserting there is no possible knowledge, even in principle. It's a fact, yeah. right? And... Um, um, uh, 
that that is the furthest possible thing from a neutral claim and it's a dogmatic claim and it's uh and, and in that sense is very far from being a universal neutral human claim mm. but it, it's it nonetheless rhetorically is able to appear as such exactly because of the lack of scrutiny of the basic principles because it's an argue it's an argument from an absence mm. and it's a basic kind of common sense argument that you might be able to put to anyone that well hold on i mean of course all we can know is the empirical right. i mean look here we are we're in a, we're in a room together what can we both point out together and see and point to and and both recognize it's only empirical objects mm. right um so there's a kind of basic common sense which is actually fundamentally fallacious for a whole host of different reasons yeah but um there's a kind of common sense argument that well since we can't know let's say the truth of various claims to to uh objective knowledge of metaphysics objective knowledge of absolute value mm -hmm. what is the nature of the good for example mm -hmm. right the traditional Platonist philosopher will be able to tell you. Yes. The traditional Muslim will be able to tell you. Traditional Christian will be able to tell you. The liberal says, well, you know, because all we can know is, is what science tells us, is all we can know is what the senses tells us, you know, those beliefs, although they're noble beliefs which should be respected and are historical and important, they are ultimately arbitrary. They're really down to your social formation, your inclinations, and so on, and therefore, um, the 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 way to serve the human being unconditioned by all of that ideology mm. is to give them the freedom to yes, ultimately arbitrarily determine their own conception of the good. Right. Right. Now, this is why it's so it's such an attractive argument, and it's been a, um, uh, exported around the world. And as as we know. You know, my experience in Jordan and the Arab world and, and, and elsewhere in the Muslim world is that there's a very, very large sector of the Muslim population now who are, who are also accepting this logic. It's like, yes, you know, freedom in this sense of arbitrary freedom. Mm -hmm. And I always use the ex examples. I know they're somewhat controversial, but they're also kind of very current and, and they're very, very crystal clear, I think, that, I mean, if you look at arguments for the acceptability of active homosexuality, for example, which was considered to be a mental illness in officially, medically, in the UK in 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 the 1950s, for example, um, until the 1950s, and the way that an argument, a philosophical argument, um, is trickles down to the general population until it passes the kind of average person in the street test which is, go and ask the average person in the street, why is active homosexuality acceptable and we should tolerate it? Well, they will inevitably say, it will never be anything other than, well, who am I to impose my own inclinations on someone else? It's their life. It's their freedom. Everyone has the right to decide how they're going to live their own life. Now, that's all trickled down from Mill and his harm principle. Right. Right, it's all trickled down from Mill and his Hamburgism, which is underlain by this dogmatic arbitrism, which is essentially also a voluntarism, hmm. which is and voluntarism, 
for the benefit of any viewers who might not know is the idea that the will is prior to any claim about the objective nature of things. So my will, my individual choice is somehow prior. It even determines the objective nature of things. Right. Right. So in that sense, every position, every action, whether it's identifying one day as a transgender or um, deciding to be an altruist who is going to feed all of the poor in the city, right? They are actually, when it comes to uh, arbitrary, you know, ethical arbitrism, they are ultimately exactly equivalent. They are just, this is one way that some one individual decided arbitrarily to exercise their, 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 their own individual will, mm. and this is the way that the other person. But there's actually no objective superiority over the two. So can I understand... Um, you're, because you're an Islamic scholar in, in, and you're traditionally trained in, in Islam. Now, Locke's argument, and I think Mill's argument would be that uh, we have these fundamental rights and these rights precede society and state mm. uh, and these rights belong to the individual. And I think yeah. Locke, if I remember right from my, from my studies, Locke argues that uh, in the state of nature, yeah. human beings have the right, and he defined these rights to be the right to life, liberty, and property. Right. And these rights are just natural rights. Mm. And in a sense, they, they're born, we are born <laughs> with these rights, and, yeah. and nothing can take these rights away from us. Yeah. From an Islamic perspective, would you say that's wrong? Not everything in in classical liberalism is wrong, not everything in Locke is wrong, and not everything in John Stuart Mill is right. I actually, ironically, very much respect Mill as a writer and a thinker. I think he's very wrong on yeah. a lot, yeah. um, especially the whole despotism thing. Mm. But um, there, there are many parallels. It's, it's, the, it's really the, the build-up of the propositions. How do you get there, which is the problem. So explain that, please. Right, yeah. so... Um, if your fundamental assumption is that there is no objective intrinsic value, mm. there is no, we possess no possible knowledge of the objective nature of the good. Right. And you are arguing to these basic rights. Um, on in Locke's, Locke's particular case, blank slatism, the idea that we're born with, without any form of... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
knowledge or inclination to the good or the beautiful um, or intrinsic knowledge of God or anything whatsoever. We've got absolutely nothing. And it's all built up over time via uh, partial empirical experiences. Yes. Um, then you are not founding your claims of these intrinsic rights on a solid foundation, even if some of the conclusions that you come to are true and would certainly be accepted in Islamic thought mm. um, about, the, about such matters. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about the harm principle, I mean, Islam has a very, very clear, but it's non-arbitrary, you see. It has a very, very clear non-arbitrary harm principle, yeah. right? One of the most important um, governing principles in Islamic ethical and political thought is the necessity of preserving the, well, the five necessities, right? The maqasid. These are the, these are the maqasid, yeah. right, which are the hevz al din which is the most important of them all, the protection of religion, the preservation of religion, have mm. the nafs, the preservation of life, have the aql, which is the preservation of intellect, and have the mal, the preservation of property, mm. right? And have the al nasab or al ard, which is the the al nasal which is the preservation of lineage and, mm -hmm. and, and also others expand that into dignity and so right. on. And um, where, where did these maqasid come from? Like how did scholars derive these five principles of maqasid? Yeah. These principles are derived from the Qur'an and the, and the Ahadith. Right. So right. they come from an explicit appreciation of the Kitab and the Sunnah. They absolutely do. And the, right. the, the governing... Uh, source text here, as it were, is the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, la dharara wa la dhirar, right? Um, so, um, from which the qa'ida fiqhiyah al-dharara yuzal is derived. So if you right? translate that hadith... Right, so there is to be no harming or the reciprocation of harm. Yeah. And then the that's translated into a fiqh principle. Yes which is uh, harm is to be removed, right? Right. This is a, a constant imperative that mm. we need to, wherever we see harm, it's a, it's a principle of our, yes. of our ethical system to always remove harm wherever, it's, wherever we see it. Right. Right. And so yeah, Islamic political theory, and I don't mean in any kind of modernist, highfalutin, you know, complex... Um, uh, uh, Sense. I'm talking about in the very, very most basic principles that we see from the very outset uh, in the community of the Prophet وسلم, in the community of the communities of the um, the uh, the Khulafa uh, Rashidin. Mm. Um, you find um, uh, that there is a very, in the in modern terms, a very, very limited form of government. Um, and there's a very, very limited reach that is 
because the government is restrained by these very, very profound and firm and unnegotiable principles, um, and there's no sense in which there can be overreach. It is immediately yeah. restrained by the by that own that that, that in, internal dynamic. So, in a way, there is an overlap here with liberalism. I mean, Locke absolutely argued for a very limited government. Maybe modern liberals have, have moved away from that that appreciation of government. Okay, that's interesting. Now, um, I just want to go come back to Locke for a second because I, I suppose so. Locke is what a 17th century philosopher. Right. He comes about after some very intense periods of religious conflict in Europe. Exactly, yeah. You've got your Hundred Years' War and then your Thirty Years' War. And, and in many ways, uh, Locke is trying to negotiate uh, the failure of European society to find what I suppose Rawls calls later an overlapping consensus, a mm. way by which you can live together, recognizing that people are different. Mm. Um, so you're going to have people who believe in, who've got a, a conception of the good life, mm. which may differ with others. And so liberals have come to a view that if you have a religious-based society, inevitably you're going to have persecution, whereas if you have a liberal society, mm. um, the liberal state is going to stand as this neutral arbiter, mm. and it's going to allow Hassan or Jalal to, to be Muslim, and it's going to allow you know the Hindu to be a Hindu and yeah. and a Christian to be a Christian. So, uh, and and lots of my listeners and viewers are actually non-Muslim, and mm. they may say in the comment section, I sus I suspect that mm. if you do have an Islamic theocracy, mm. then inevitably you're going to have some form of persecution of minorities. How would you how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, as we know, unfortunately, um, this portrayal of Islam as a theocracy, is a terrible, terrible travesty and, and highly anachronistic right. because it's seeing viewing Islam from within um, a very idiosyncratically Western, irreducibly Western uh, classificatory framework, which just doesn't apply to Islam. It's anachronistic. It's a different, it's a different framework. Yeah. Um, now, look, it's very amusing in a tragic and ironic way when you don't know whether to laugh or cry mm -hmm. for the West to uh, lecture and sermonize to the Islamic world about tolerance. Right. Because the West had to invent this concept, which because it was so alien to them yeah. in the 17th century yeah. and went through, um, of course, after the Protestant Revolution, the Thirty Years' War, and all, and which, you know, the Thirty Years' War by the way, was the single most devastating uh, armed conflict in European history until the First and Second World Wars. Right, yeah. There was absolutely nothing like it. Um, and until the Treaty of Augsburg and the Peace of Westphalia, and then um, you, 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 got, you start to have the uh, canonical writers uh, on religious tolerance mm -hmm. and so and, and and foremost amongst them probably John Locke with his letter on tolerance mm -hmm. um there, there there simply um there was no space for religious diversity in Europe whatsoever um C catholic europe had no but before the protestant revolution had no tolerance for for other religious communities whatsoever there was a certain um very, very limited ghettoization of Jews, 
at certain particular periods because they were seen to be able to perform certain um, functions for uh, the, the larger society. Um, and, and that would always be very, very conditional and it would, it would usually culminate in a pogrom of one sort or another. Yes. Um, but of course, no religious diversity amongst Christians allowed whatsoever and of course, no space for Muslims. Yeah. Um, whereas during that entire period and, 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 and even before, Muslims, Jews and Christians and in fact later uh, Hindus and, and people of other religions who had the definition of of people of the book extended to them um, were able to, you know, under certain very uh, careful um, conditions and, and after, you know, obviously careful uh, scrutinization of, of criteria by the scholars. Um, and that had been going on for uh, a, a thousand years um, because there was an alternative foundation other than this arbitrism for tolerating different religious communities right. doesn't have to be rooted in arbitrism and it's not well known again and it should be better known Locke's main his fundamental argument there are many very useful articles about this his fundamental argument in his letter on toleration is exactly the argument we've been talking about before right. it would be unjust to impose our own our own religious views on others since none of us really know. Mm. <laughs> yes. Because we can't even in principle know. Yes. So it's an argument from skepticism again, which is again rooted in his empiricist uh, assumptions. So I suppose one take-home message at this point is, as Muslims, we can't fall into those same assumptions. Right. It's very, very important for us to have our own authentic metaphysics and epistemology that we base out the, the build-up of, of, of subsequent sciences in. So ethics has to be rooted ultimately in sound uh, metaphysical, consider, uh, me metaphysical principles mm -hmm. and theological principles. And of course, you know, in our tradition, politics is a branch of ethics. Right. Very, very, you know, and economics is a branch of ethics, which again sp speaks volumes. Yeah. So when we talk about liberalism, um, we can't escape, and you mentioned this at at the start of our discussion, we can't escape that crusading spirit of mm. the ideology. Wars are fought to impose democracy or women's rights, as in the case of Afghanistan. Yeah. How do liberals reconcile this really violent imposition of their ideology when on paper, liberalism does sound and look like a benign ideology? It's actually written in again into some of its... Um source texts, as it were, yeah. um, that this only really applies to other liberal democratic nations. Right. Um, those that exist outside of that rubric are a threat because we, because, and it, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a pretty sneaky argument here. They're saying basically this wonderful freedom that you enjoy. Yes. You know, if we don't go and take out the bad guys, you're not going to have that wonderful freedom anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to enjoy that anymore. Yes. And even them, you know, they won't be able to enjoy that in the future. Yes. Right. So it's to the detriment of everyone for us not to go in and, and civilize these people. Of course, people don't use the language of, of, civilizing. Well, of civilizing the other anymore, but yeah. it, there's no actual difference. I mean, there's no substantive difference. Yeah. 
We, we often come across liberals in our workplaces. In fact, I was on a few of the demonstrations for Palestine. And, mm. you know, you're marching by people who would call themselves liberals. And, mm. and uh, they don't have this crusading spirit. And they mm. see, you know, the unjust nature of the apartheid state of Israel. And, yeah. and they see the fallacies of, of Western, um, uh, Western foreign policy. How do we understand the mindset of these liberals who are actually quite reasonable in the way they view injustice and justice? Well, um, these are people who are simply on their fitra. I don't think that they're usually liberal ideologues who right. really understand philosophical underpinnings of, of liberalism. Right. If they did, again, I'd say, well, they could rest on Kant's argument because he explicitly says that, that, that intervention is... Military intervention is is uh, unacceptable mm. under any circumstances. Um, I mean, we have to go back to some of the fundamental reasons um, underlying liberal, the original colonial liberal uh, entry into Palestine under the British. Mm. Um, you had the first governor of uh, the first. Uh, uh, mayor, not sure the exact what the exact title was of mm -hmm. Jerusalem mm -hmm. under the British store, yeah. um, who famously said, "You know, we need to, we need Palestine because we we need our own little Jewish Ulster in the Middle East amidst a sea of hostile Arabs." Right, right. Um, but I think that there are there are deeper reasons for the importance of Palestine. The reason that. You know, in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, this attracted a lot of support amongst um, a Christian evangelicals in in, in England. Yeah. Uh, this is the this represent it was emblematic of the final victory of Western civilization over Islam. Yes, and they had to have Palestine. They'd always had their eye on it, as we know very well, um, and there were actual crusades. Um, and uh, it was seen as somehow, and this is something you experience when you go there. I mean, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be allowed in again. But uh, if I, you know, when you go to the Haram, when you go to the Noble Sanctuary, and you see the Dome of the Rock, and you see the other religions, yeah, you see the reality of Islam as the final revelation. That you know, that these other revelations had their time. They had a, a, a true divine origin, but when Islam came, because the Prophet of Islam came to, he came to the, uh, what is now the Dome of the Rock, and he ascended, and he led all of the prophets in prayer. And this was the, it was, it was the culmination of prophecy. Yeah. You know, it was the kind of consummation of 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 the whole history of communication between Allah Taala and His messengers. Yeah. And you really see the truth. It's this kind of it's. And I think this has always really irked um, uh, Christians living in Europe. I mean, how dare they? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was—it's this kind of ultimate proof of, in a sense, the uh, the truth and also the way in which of Islam and, and the way in which it has been also um, it it's been given nasr. You know, it's been given triumph by the divine. Mm. Um, and so, I don't think it's just a question of liberal interventionism um i think that's always been uh you know what we today 
call liberal internationalism is just a pro, you know it is just prolonging straightforward imperialism right. there's no real gap there yes there's a there's a complete conceptual even historical continuity um and you know, israel is absolutely or so-called israel you know palestine was the prize which was absolutely uh emblematic of of the final victory of you know, this great enlightened uh, Western civilization, as far as they perceived themselves, um, and uh, and I think you know this has gone in stages. I think you know one why October the seventh is going to be uh, a turning point to, to a large extent is because I think justification for blind support of Israel on the part of the Western powers has undergone many different stages, and I think it's now getting into the stages where where well actually not quite so sure why we're doing this anymore. Um, and I think this is in virtue of the collapse of uh, the, the West's own ability to self-define its own crisis of identity, and you know, which again are symbolized by the culture wars mm. taking place, which are devouring the, the, uh, the whole culture, the whole society. You said earlier on that liberalism cannot tolerate Islam. Mm. Um, I'd like to ask you why that is, and uh, maybe a, a secondary question. Um, what then does Islam have to do to be tolerated by, by liberalism? Like what do we have to go, what transformation mm. do we need to go through in order to be tolerated by liberalism and liberal societies? Um, I think we would need to cease to be um, Muslims in any really substantial way. Um, this has been already alluded to, but I think by several of your previous wonderful guests, mm. um, uh, I can't remember specific details, but the general idea is that, well, look, there are, it's really appearance to a large extent. It's a very superficial form of tolerance, which is extended to Muslims mm. because they can tolerate us in the sen in to the extent to which we are pigeonholed amongst the other docile, polite world religions who also exist here as minorities, yes. who look frankly don't really believe in their religion in the way that Muslims do. Right. Um, it's all the model of faith, which is again the only one that uh, liberalism can really tolerate. Yeah. But it happens to be a model of faith which has nothing to do with our model of faith, which is the idea of blind faith, mm. arbitrary blind faith. Mm. You know, I, I was brought up this way. I was brought up in a Muslim fa family. It makes sense to me to a certain extent. Um, it's part of my identity. It means a lot to me. But I am, you know, a contributing, conscientious uh, citizen of Britain who's contributing to the economy and I've gone through the entire system and I'm British first, you know, yes. that, that's the type of person that they want. Um, it's a, it's bordering on cultural, a cultural Muslim. Mm. Um, and our, you know, our understanding of faith is simply not blind faith. This idea that you have a leap of faith yeah. and you believe in whatever absurd thing that you're asked to believe by your creed. Yeah. It, because our the our understanding of iman is that it has to involve assent, which is actually a logical category, tasdiq, which means that you 
believe on the basis of proof. Mm. You're actually moved to believe by evidence, yes. by, by, by uh, overwhelming evidence indeed, um, by compelling and, and, and indeed overwhelming evidence. Um, and um, so these are very, very different conceptions. I don't believe that, that real Islam can be tolerated by arbitrist liberalism um, because it's a counter-hegemony. So where does that leave people like me, Muslims in the West who live here amongst in Western liberal societies? Well, I think we'll go on pretending, won't we? Um, <laughs> I, know, I know that, that that's not intended to be a subversive statement, yes. but I think to, the truth is we know that we have to present ourselves in a way which is acceptable to the non-Muslims around us. Yes. Very rarely you will find a true friend who honestly is someone who's probably going to eventually become Muslim themselves, who is genuinely tolerant, not just in the, in the you know, Western tolerant sense, yes, which yes. is very, very limited, yeah. but is genuinely tolerant. They're genuinely interested yes. in a fundamentally different view of the world. But that's very, very rare. Yeah. The vast majority of cases, um, um, most, indiv most non-Muslim individuals in this society, it's not because they're bad people, it's because this is, you know, this is what they live and breathe, and, and they may be able to come around if they had a really, really good uh, education in, in all of this. Um, but most of them will bulk at some of our fundamental beliefs. I think, again, another turning point uh, of October the 7th, and this is one of the ones which is up to us, mm is that we need to stop trying to make Islam amenable to their prejudices. Yeah. I think we really need to stop trying, be a little bit more assertive. Um, and I think there, there's a lot of impetus in the society. There are a lot of other phenomena in the society which will help us in that. One of them is the whole... Uh, you know, the, 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 what, what is known as post-colonialism, mm. which has a lot of its own problems because it's based on post-modernist philosophy. There are a lot of problems there, but there's also a lot, a lot that is positive there. Yes, yeah. And that, you know, it's, a, it's a lot of that kind of thought and material, which means that a lot of extreme left liberals think they're on our side. Yes. And a lot of them are very good people. And a lot of them are people who can come around to probably having a deeper understanding of what we're really about. But look, the lack of tolerance is mutual. Um, you know, I was, I was discussing with a friend um, recently, well, you know, we tolerate historically in Islamic civilization so much mm. and really almost anything. Mm. We don't fiddle with other societies. We protect them and we have our principle, al-Adam muhakkama custom has the power of law. And, and that and other principles allow these, these societies to be, they're not micromanaged. They were never micromanaged. They're, we don't want to change them. We don't want them to be exactly. assimilated into our exactly. culture. Exactly. Right. It's genuine diversity, yeah. right? You know, and so that, that, and there are only a very few, um, you know, as, as uh, Professor Muhammad Hamor um, uh, points out in, uh, in where well, he's been pointing out in the, in the recent lectures he's been giving on this in Asul Academy, he's, someone I'm collaborating in, uh, with on, on an ethics project. But, um, uh, you know, as he points out, there, there are only very, very few exceptions to this. You know, one of them is the, was the prohibition of Sati in India, the, you know, the self-immolation of yeah. the... Yeah. Right, that was one of the few places where the Muslims were stepping away, no, we can't have that custom. 
Why? Because it violated the non-arbitrary Islamic harm principle, which is what was hevdal nafs, the preservation of life. Yeah. So it wasn't acceptable. You can't do that, even if it's part of your custom. Another was, you know, in the early period, um, some of the Zoroastrian nobility would 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 commit incest. They would only marry from their, you know, very very close family. Yeah. They stepped in again to prevent that. There are only a handful of other historical examples, yeah. but generally they were left. But what we were saying, sorry, to get back to the point is, yeah. you know, that the. the this lack of tolerance when it comes to arbitrarist liberalism is mutual. Yeah. Could we really have a protected community who were arbitrarist liberalists mm. in the sense that they thought that um, if someone wants to self-determine, I'm saying in, you know, almost humorously, but so as, a, as a, a militant atheist, that would be acceptable. Mm. Or they want to self-determine as the opposite gender that they were born into. Or they wanted to, um, or they wanted to exercise their freedom um, by committing acts of immorality in public, mm. right? Because again, it's a very, very limited model of government in the Islamic conception, and there's a very, very strict. Again, I mean, it's in a sense similar to liberalism. But there's a very, very, well, it's not actually because yeah. in our societies, the protection of privacy is um, violated everywhere, mm. as we know. But in the in uh, traditional Islamic uh, political conceptions, the right to privacy is a very, very, very strict right. Mm. It is to the extent that even if the authorities were to witness a crime by spying, they wouldn't be able to press the matter any further. Right. And there's actual very interesting historical precedent here mm. in amazing stories about Sayyidina Umar and so on. But um, so the point is uh, there is um, uh, there is this very, very strict uh, uh, protection of privacy, but there is no tolerance for... Uh, outwardly committing, outwardly promoting, publicizing Marcia. Mm. Mm. So you can't spy. What people do in the, in the privacy of their own homes yeah. is absolutely up to them. And that is very important from an Islamic conception, from, from Islamic perspective, to preserve taklif. We believe in the importance of freedom because it's only someone who is free in their own conscience mm. who can choose to believe in Allah Ta'ala right. and who, who can choose to believe in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And you know, it says, You only warn someone who follows the... You, know, you are only warning those who follow the remembrance and have fear of Allah Ta'ala. They have fear of the merciful, in fact, which is very important. Mm. They have fear of the merciful even when they're on their own. Mm. That's, the, that's the most basic interpretation of that verse. It has many beautiful interpretations. Yes. Um, so there has to be a space in which individuals are there with their conscience and it's just them and Allah Ta'ala. Mm. And no one can, you know, no one has the right to invade that privacy. On the other hand, what is different about uh, when, it, when it comes to the exercise of, of free freedom and, and, and manifesting free actions what is different when it comes to a comparison with this society, you can't do that publicly because there is objective morality. 
And because that harms the society as a whole, so that violates, again, an overall harm principle. So we couldn't have a protected, arbitrist, liberal society who demanded the right to commit Marcy in public. Yeah. So it's mutual. They do exclude each other. Now, this is not a some form of counsel of despair or some sort of manifesto for some sort of something which would be extreme. Quite to the contrary, you know, there's a de facto situation, which is we do live in the West. Mm. Uh, we do have an existence in the West. And... Um, and and it will continue, and not everyone can make hijra, and actually not everyone should. Um, but I do think we have to realize there is a fundamental and deep incompatibility between um, Islam and, and arbitrarist liberalism in certain areas, and I do think it's important, if we ever do pretend that that's not the case, that we, that we stop pretending. Um, Hassan Spiker, out of the sadness of, of Gaza... Um, is there an opportunity, and I use that word with, with a lot of reservation, but is there an opportunity for the Muslim ummah towards some form of renewal? I think there, there is a very, very profound opportunity. Yeah. And I said at the beginning, I think that part of that is just the natural course of events, and that's Allah's rahmah. And we will be brought to that by, by simply in the unfolding of time. But another is really up to us. And, and I think it does, to a very large extent, rest upon our not falling into what is, again, a, a, an ultimately Western rhetoric of rights and embattled minorities and it's unfair and we need to be you know, given our rights by you like you promised and so on. Um, and, and this narrative of the embittered, uh, oppressed people. Um, but rather that we use this to, um, as, as more impetus for, as another stimulus for genuine renewal. Mm. Political renewal, a genuine political, a genuine Islamic political renewal is impossible without a prior intellectual and spiritual renewal. And one of the fundamental reasons for that is in the absence of that intellectual and spiritual renewal, we will, unknowing, unbeknownst even to ourselves, we will fall into those very, in this case, liberal political and ethical assumptions that we are criticizing without even realizing that we're doing so because that kind of programming is very is very very deep within anyone who's brought up not just i wouldn't say just in the west like we were but, but at least in my case uh, but but um but across the world right and um so that is i think something that we have to take very very seriously and one of the most important starting points is the renewal the beginnings of a renewal of our ethical framework mm -hmm. and our and our basic ethical understanding in the spirit of the fact that in our tradition politics is a branch of ethics right right um but i do think that when it comes to the particular tragic situation that has unfolded after 
October 7th, when we've seen a criminality from Israel, which I just don't think, I, I, I can't think of any historical parallel, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that certainly they have um, installed themselves as the new reference point for absolute evil, um, uh, you know, for, 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 for all time. And um, and I think that it's a great nasr in a in a very serious way that Allah has handed us um, just in that particular point a, a, a huge victory because that has become clear to the entire world. Yeah, and it's a real monument of evil for all the ages. Um, so uh, and I think my own personal belief about the future of Palestine is that Nasser will come um, and I, I believe that it will come very very soon Inshallah. I don't know if it's going to be as soon as 2027 yeah. but uh, I think it will be um, very soon be in the light Hassan Spiker it's really been a fascinating conversation invigorating Jazakallah thank you very much it's been an honor thank you please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.